You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Sergeant Shriver becomes the vice presidential candidate after Tom Eagleton is dropped from the Democratic ticket in 1972, running with George McGovern. After there were proven allegations that he had received electroshock therapy in the 60s and also kind of his handling of it, that story being used as evidence and maybe McGovern couldn't make good staffing decisions and all of these bad things. They go to many people. Of course, they want Ted Kennedy. He didn't want to be VP candidate in the beginning, and he doesn't want it now. Sergeant Shriver is a dutiful person. He's a member of the Kennedy family, at least by in-law. He is, he jokes, the seventh person that the campaign asks when he accepts it. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Thank you very much. In politics, Sergeant Shriver was as different as they come. An idealist, his kids agree, but not one to be trifled with. Do you really believe that poverty can be wiped out? Yes, I do. We have a war for the freedom of people and for opportunity for all people, regardless of race, color, or creed. We are saying to the world that we are committed to the pursuit of peace. So when people said the Peace Corps couldn't happen, he made it happen. When he said you couldn't uh, give an early childhood education to poor kids, he made it happen through Head Start. Same with legal services for poor people. I think people made fun of Daddy. You know, they called him a Boy Scout. They called him an in-law. He wasn't taken seriously. Do you think that bothered him? I mean, could you tell growing up? No, I don't know that it bothered him. It ticks me off. But I think, uh, <laughs> I think because I think, uh, I think it's a, a, you know, he wasn't, he was a serious, serious human being. Just a few years ago, Shriver's son receives a phone call um, when his uh, father, Sergeant Shriver, died from Joe Biden. And Joe Biden says, I have to tell you a story that I haven't told. And that's, I'll always appreciate your father because he came out to a rally in Delaware in the last week of the 1972 campaign. Okay. McGovern Shriver didn't have a chance of winning Delaware. There was no reason for him to come, but he came and that rally helped to get me publicity and put me over in that election. It was an enormously close election that Biden won in a state that Richard Nixon was going to carry. And there's a moment in the book that you describe where one of your brothers is at, I guess, Hyannisport with the Kennedys and Bobby Kennedy, that everybody's there, and he falls down and he cries. And Bobby Kennedy says, Kennedys don't cry. You're not allowed to cry to my brother Bobby. And dad scoops him up and says, that's okay, you can cry, you're a Shriver. And this really must have been a powerful moment and really kind of drew the line between the Kennedys and the Shrivers. Like, look, you know, I get along really well with my cousins. They're great sources of friendship and support and love. Um, you know, I think my dad was a little different. He understood that it was okay to cry when my brother screwed up, and we all screwed up. Uh, he just offered unconditional support. Bobby also got arrested for marijuana in 1970 when dad was thinking of running for either president or governor of Maryland. Um, and instead of yelling at him, like most fathers would, particularly in the very prominent position he was in, 
He said, look, you're my son. I love you. Don't worry about what other people are going to say. This is going to work out. But as much as uh, Shriver had some assets, I'll, I'll always point out that the only success that McGovern had in 1972, other than party building, um, bringing the youth elements into the party that would remain there for 1976, was that they carried the state of Massachusetts. And Sergeant Shriver being one of the Kennedy family, you know, you could see him as a successful VP candidate for that reason, at least carried his home state. McGovern did not carry his home state of South Dakota. Here's what a, a magazine article said. He can, like those whose legacy invokes, be a nifty man with a crowd. He exudes vitality. His enthusiasm is public, almost a sense of gaiety, as his party discovered in August of 1972, when he joked about being the sixth or seventh choice to be McGovern's running mate. But one, he didn't handle well. In 1972, the McGovern camp was having its problems with Frank King, who was the head of the Ohio AFL-CIO. Alienated guy, alienated guy, his labor didn't win the delegate seats. To make points, they arranged for a public meeting with Shriver when he was campaigning in Cleveland. King and a couple of aides were to come to the hotel coffee shop, order dessert and coffee. Shriver would be notified and he'd join them in full view of the press. It's the kind of thing that does wonders for the ego of a politician. But nursing those egos, like the ALFL-CIO guys in Ohio, is important if you want to be vice president. King and his aides arrive. They order dessert. They order coffee. They ate the dessert as slowly as they could, one said. Lick their plates several times as the minutes passed. But you can linger over coffee and dessert just so long. Meanwhile, upstairs in his hotel room, Shriver was jumping in and out of the shower, ignoring the pleas from aides on bended knees that he keep his date with King. Finally, Shriver went down, arriving in the lobby just in time to say hi as King and his men left. Shriver was a good candidate, but they said... He sometimes had little sense of time and couldn't hurry himself. This was one of the stories that I wanted to include on that Running for President podcast. I mean, there's a bunch of others. Some of them I just have a list, and I guess eventually I'll get around to it. One is the kid with the Xerox. So this has to do with the 1976 election. So <laughs> Carter's speech is one of the biggest secrets of the convention in 1976 there's they know he's going to get the nomination he there's a little surprise over the pick of walter mondale but after that it's just going to be what's carter going to say in his speech but um there's a kid who is tasked with um xeroxing copies of the speech and he doesn't do anything with the copies it's nothing nefarious like that but he hears the aides um moaning about how bad the speech is. They don't like it. And he tells the press, he actually tells reporters that he heard this. Why? Because he wants Carter to give a good speech and he wants it to get better. So already, before the speech is out, there's already a, a, a story about how um, they're panning the speech that, that comes close. Now, I got this uh, story from... 
Patrick Anderson. And, um, you know, Patrick Anderson is the writer of the speech. He's working with Carter on writing his nomination speech. And he's like, well, this is a speech that Jimmy really likes and we think the campaign's behind it. I don't know what your source is, you know. And so eventually to talks to the reporter, talks him down and uh, probably has to promise him something and, and gets rid of that that story. But you came pretty close there to having this negative story in the press for no other reason that the kid who was Xeroxing the speech decided to talk to a reporter. Uh, what else we got here? I have a um, – in the 1916 election, there's a, there's a moment where Theodore Roosevelt tells friends, like, yeah, this is pretty much over for me. My The sun is set on my politics, you know. And uh, that's – and that would turn out to be true. Actually, he'd pass in 1919. Um, there's a story about how Brian ended up with two running mates. He nominates at the Democratic convention, Arthur Sewell, but the populist convention gives him Tom Watson, who's a populist from Georgia. And they don't like Sewell. They think Sewell's a big, hard money man, and they don't. And Brian has this whole choice of choosing between loyalty to the VP candidate, who, while a conservative, unlike Brian, who's a progressive, did support him and um, does support the coining of silver money and, and remain a lot of other hard money people left the democratic committee when brian was nominated sewell does not so brian has to make a choice and chooses to be loyal to sewell and saying that he will accept the nomination but not if you're not picking my running mate well the populists go ahead and nominate brian and watson in any case votes for brian and watson will be recorded for william jennings brian in the various states I wanted to explore more Adelai Stevenson, how he gets chosen, kind of comes from nowhere in 1952 and gets picked. The convention happens to be in Chicago. Stevenson's the governor. There's a draft Stevenson movement live on the convention floor. And Truman is kind of behind it, at least in that Truman doesn't like Kefauver, who had won all the primaries up to that point. Um, found him to be like a pesky little youngin and didn't support Truman enough. So... But what you really have in 1952 is the last second ballot at a convention. After that, every nominee in a major party convention is chosen on the first ballot. So I wanted to talk more about that. Never got a chance. I want to talk about the Locofocos. These are um, – it's because it's key to understanding the run-up to the Civil War, really, that you have these northern Democrats who are not like the Democrats in the south, um, that they're Locofocos and they're they're activists and they, they actually – want to either end slavery or gradually end it. And they also want a host of other progressive, we would call today, issues about uh, helping working people and the like. And the reason they call them locofocos is because the old conservative guys in the Democratic meetings, like the Tammany Hall folks, tried to shut the lights out on them. And they have these locofocos, which was an invention at the time. It's a self-igniting match. So that um, her self-igniting lamp, so it can light itself, and they don't need the gas. So it's it's a um, or they don't need the oil, um, and it also symbolizes the, the 
they call them the locofocus, like the locofocus kept meeting. Like so many other insults in politics, locofocus took it as a badge of honor. And it also kind of symbolizes how modern and thinking they were because they were using this new technology gadget. And um, the locofocus movement is very important to understand, I would say, the politics from the 1830s to the 1860s. There's even going to be morphs off that because you have like New America movement, which is, um, or Young America, which is uh, kind of Franklin Pierce's thing, which is a locofoco without some of the radical stuff. So you even have like sub-movements within there. I never got a chance to talk about that. Uh, there was a great story uh, about the 1880 election where opponents, you know, <laughs> William Scott, Hancock, uh, Winfield Scott Hancock is the Democrat running against James Garfield. He's a military guy. He doesn't know anything about politics and issues. So they ask him about the tariff. He really can't say anything coherently to reporters. And so the Republicans come out with a book, The Positions of Winfield Scott Hancock. And it's like a little pamphlet, but when you look at the pages, there's nothing in them. It's empty. So that was one of their most uh, kind of unique 19th century attack ads. Those are just some stories that I wanted to get to and never had the chance. Um, Maybe some other day. interesting aspect to the 1992 campaign and that the Clinton campaign in 92 Clinton Gore gets a lot of um, praise for how organized they were during the campaign and how they ran that a very well-oiled machine at Carville Stephanopoulos and all that used to be it was a hierarchy if you were on one floor you didn't go to another floor if you were somewhere on the organization chart there was no room for you there everybody was compartmentalized and you people show that you can be trusted. Everybody in this room. Everybody. And people are going to tell you you're lucky. You're not. Ben Hogan said golf is a game of luck. The more I practice, the lucky I get. <laughs> the harder you work, the luckier you are. I was 33 years old before I ever went to Washington, New York. I was 42 before I ever won my first campaign. And I'm happy for all of y'all. You've been part, part of something special in my life. Now, don't forget the job done. Thank you. But there was an element of it that wasn't planned, and it grew out of the campaign. And it was something that also became necessary for the very reason that his campaign was so organized, that his statements were always on message, you know. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. 
I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Paul Begala used to say, like, you never find a candidate, and any campaign consultant could never find a candidate that was on message as much as Clinton. You know, he was just perfect at it. Um, but there was a problem. And Clinton handlers were worried about it, that Clinton still didn't have the image. There was still some resistance to him from voters that was hurting his chances of beating President Bush in 92. So they created a covert operation within the campaign called the Manhattan Project. Um, Stuart Greenberg, I, I believe that's the guy. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, we'll find out. Um, they ask a series of focus groups what they don't like about the candidate. They go to Allentown, Pennsylvania, and they say he's two-faced. He just goes with the flow. If you asked him his favorite color, he'd say plaid. Even Clinton's strategist, Raging Cajun James Carville, says once, I've had blind dates with women I've known more about than I know about Clinton. As Greenberg put it, they set up a team with the top campaign people dealing with strategy and messaging and pulling out the day-to-day primary fights to go back to basis, to focus how to address the trust issue. If they didn't change that, he wouldn't have a chance of winning. It's Mandy Grunwald who is part of this Manhattan Project. Every day and every way, we will all have to change. No one can repeal the laws of change, but we're going to make change your friend if you will work hard and play by the rules. I'm tired of seeing people punished for doing that, and they'll be rewarded in our administration. The team started to realize that what the campaign was putting out there in ads and what they thought voters thought of Clinton was not what voters thought of Clinton. Like, Grunwell would say they, they heard about pot smoking and assumed he came from a privileged background. Like, what, are you crazy? Do you know the story of Bill Clinton? The father was a salesperson, dies, you know, on a rainy road, um, grown up with a single mom, um, brother has issues, never had a lot of money. Uh, so they changed the campaign to stress Clinton's humble origins and that he came from one of the poorest states in the country and as governor invested in education. Not all bad. I mean, imagine this. After the government offices closed one night, Three highly paid political appointees of the State Department, departing from all past tradition, using their power for political ends, sneak in a dark building, go into a dark room where there are all these old files there, bump into each other and get dirt on their nice suits, and they look for four hours trying to find some dirt on my poor mama. But there's some good there. It's the only time since Bush has been president that those three hacks worked till 10 o'clock at night. 
They assembled a group of 10 white women in Allentown, Pennsylvania, who were independents or weak Democrats. And before the session began, five were for Perot, three were for Bush, and two were for Clinton. What did they think of Clinton? They didn't. Does he care about you? No, not about the things in my life. Could you trust him? He wouldn't steal, but he would shade the truth. His morals? Everyone said he didn't have a problem, but expected others might have a problem with him. Every woman said she didn't have a problem personally, but expected others might have a problem with somebody like Clinton. Not a good response. Um, so they And they tried some of these campaign messages like Clinton liked the new covenant. The response was blistering. Just words, glib, insulting, blaming victims. When they tried another campaign, fighting for the forgotten middle class, baloney, propaganda, Track three, putting people first, brought more negatives. By the end, Stu Greenberg sat fiddling a purple slinky, a toy someone had left on the table. It was frightening. They think he's so political, the message stuff gets completely discounted. In fact, he's spending so much time on messaging that they're not getting the message. They fixed it up a bit. Imagine how you will feel on January the 20th if instead of four more years of blame and denial... Division and diversion. We are all locking hands, walking down Pennsylvania Avenue to take our country back. Obviously, and won that election. And that is a, off anyone's looking to history for how to run a campaign better, having some kind of internal ombudsman focus groups like that is a good check on what I think sometimes are giddy little messages that campaigns put out. <laughs> so, the Manhattan Project, 1992. These are all from stories that I plan to talk about on the Not Running for President podcast, and it just got too big, and I never got around to it. The Lincoln replacing Roger B. Taney in the Supreme Court came up as an issue in the 2020 campaign, not surprisingly, because there was a Supreme Court vacancy. And uh, much was made of the fact that Lincoln had waited till after the 1864 election to replace Taney. Now, um, it's worth a look at the history, and it is true. The facts of that are true. But you go too far, and I have to say um, Kamala Harris um, – Kamala Harris uh, a little bit too far in the VP debate by saying like, well, this is the lesson Lincoln thought that the people should vote before. Well, it, 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 there's no evidence or letter that says that he thought that the people should vote before. But I do agree sometimes with history. You have to look at actions and make assumptions from actions. Like if a political actor did this, maybe they didn't always write a letter. You don't have them on video. You don't have them interviewed. The, there's a lot of press at this time, but not the kind of media and press that we have today. So not every action is documented like that. Um, so you do know that he waited till after the election. Maybe he wanted the people to get a say. But here's what John Hay, his secretary, says. Last night, Chief Justice Taney went home to his father's. And by the way, Taney and Lincoln didn't see eye to eye. I mean, Taney is the author of the Dred Scott decision that Lincoln hates. Already, Hay writes... Before his old clay is cold, they're beginning to canvas vigorously for his successor. 
Chase men say the place is promised to their Magnifico. You can see what Hay thinks of Chase. Uh, everybody comes to him. Edward Stanton, uh, who's the Secretary of War, is going to be a nominated. Uh, he's not going to live to see the Supreme Court, but he's going to be nominated later by Grant. Uh, Attorney General Attorney General Edward Bates actually asks. He sends a letter October thirteenth. Could I have the appointment as the crowning retiring honor of my life? So Lincoln's no dummy. He, he, he's he got at least two candidates, and Chase is also Treasury Secretary financing the war. The war's still raging. The election's still going on. They don't want to pick one of these rivals and uh, alienate the others. Plus, the Senate is closed, as people have pointed out online. So he can't do it until after the election. Congress and the Supreme Court were set to reconvene the week, the first week in December. The election is November 8th. He ends up appointing Chase. And he sends it as soon as he can on December 6th, 1864. Um, nobody really knew he was going to do it. And it's a very simple letter from Lincoln with no explanation. I nominate Salmon P. Chase of Ohio to be Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States, Vice Roger B. Taney. Okay, we talked a bit on the podcast about Ford and Reagan and the potential dream ticket idea of 1980. And the question that might come up is, would such a thing work, right? A former president running with someone who had been a two-term governor, but not in Washington at all yet, at the top of the ticket. I'll look, in that with the, I'll look into that with the usual alt-history caveats, right? Whenever you engage in this alt-history, we're changing one thing. We're putting Ford in there instead of Bush. And we're not changing a whole bunch of other things that might have changed. We can try to think about some of those things. But generally what you want to do if you're doing it best is just changing that one thing and say, how would have things been different, right? Okay. One thing to note is, and I didn't get into this, and I should have, on the um, cast that we did about elephant in the room, former presidents, etc., is the reverse happens in 1976, that Ford considered Reagan. Many in the party thought that it was the ticket he needed to beat Carter, but Ford decided against it. Ford was not a fan. He resented that Reagan had entered the primaries against him, a sitting president in 1976. Uh, Reagan, of course, felt that Ford shouldn't have even been in the race. He didn't belong there. He was a caretaker president. Um, somebody who gets that role, having been unelected, really should have just allowed the primary field to happen. He also, and it's funny because there's a lot of talk about kind of fake news or conspiracy theories or things like that today. Conspiracy theory, probably too strong a word. Fake news better in this case. There was some type of a a statement that kept going around in very conservative circles about a Newsweek article. But this Newsweek article had never been published, where Ford had said he wouldn't run for president. Ford never said that he wouldn't run for president on his own right. 
So in 76, he does. But Reagan still feels that Ford broke this promise, and that gave him energy. You know, it's a big deal. Um, there's some Reagan people who are like, whoa, 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 you're running against a sitting president in the party. We're not giving you any money. Uh, we're going to be persona non grata in an important national party. So anyway, uh, there you have it. Both uh, both people didn't like each other. Um, one of the advantages we have with Gerald Ford is that he had a series of conversations over several decades with a reporter named Thomas DeFrank. Uh believe gonna say washington post and that reporter uh he basically had an arrangement with him that gerald ford would talk to him off the record but he could not publish any of it until he died now this was also a reporter that was covering him so you know there were things that were on the record too uh about reagan there's a lot of things um here's what thomas defrank said he neither liked nor respected the former hollywood actor he considered Reagan a superficial, disengaged, intellectually lazy showman who didn't do his homework and clung to a naive, unrealistic, and essentially dangerous worldview. No doubt there was a large measure of envy at play, classic show horse versus work horse situation. Ford both admired and envied Reagan's undisputed skills as a communicator. Hit a hell of a flare, he conceded. He blamed Ford for his 1976 loss. His lack of campaigning was one of three or four reasons that resulted in my loss to Carter. But also, Ford really is hesitant to run against Reagan in the 1980 primary. He'll take the nomination if there's a kind of draft Ford movement because the party decides that Reagan is too right wing to beat Carter. So Ford's in this weird situation where he knows in his head that he can beat Carter. Here's what DeFrank says and actually uh, files to his bosses uh, for possible publication or use in publication. Based on a deep background conversation with Ford, I think we can say without fear of contradiction that Jerry Ford intends to support the party's nominee with far more diligence and grace than Ronald Reagan non-campaigned for him in 1976. It's very clear it's more of a problem with Carter as president than Reagan. But I also am safe in saying Ford isn't going to stump for Reagan just for the hell of it. He remains deeply resentful, still angry at his hand sitting at this time. Still personally offended at all of Reagan's demo, dem, demagoguery on the Panama Canal issue. Still believing in his soul that Reagan simply can't win against Jimmy Carter. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Some of us love history. 
Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. As Ford himself said in last week's strategy session in Washington, I can support the man and I will, but he'll pay a price. So you kind of see what's going on there and what the feelings are. Uh, but let's say all of that was for naught. We, this idea was coming more from the Reagan camp, which I think is surprising for most people. And observers such as Dick Cheney, he's more than an observer, he was Ford's chief of staff. This is before he became congressman and uh, certainly secretary of defense and all of that. He's telling Ford, this isn't a good idea. Now, if you're asked, you're going to have to do it. But as the Ford side seemed to get concessions from the Reagan side, you know, wait, they're going to give us Henry Kissinger as Secretary of State? Wait, they're going to give us Alan Greenspan, a personal friend of Ford, as Treasury Secretary? Wow. You know, it started to get more attractive. And one thing, again, it should have made the cast is that Ford asked for an extra day. The last day that he could have made the decision would be Thursday of that convention. Reagan had, had said, accepted Ford's final no and gave him an ultimatum for Wednesday night. So the Ford team wanted more time to think about it and mull it over, make suggestions. So these are interesting things that there's a lot of back and forth. Initially, Ford doesn't want to do it. He comes to the convention because he's Republican, of course. He kind of has a side agenda of supporting Bush for the vice presidency. He admits to Thomas DeFrank that he may have pushed, kept pushing the requirements for this kind of Ford Reagan ticket in order to maybe make the deal collapse so he wouldn't even have to deal with it. And in the process, really hands it to Bush, who he wanted anyway. So I think there's a little inkling that maybe at the end he might have looked to it. Um, but this all influences my thinking when you start to go to how would have Ford been as vice president? How would have that first term gone? Because you would have had a very reluctant person in the vice presidency. Doing it for duty, certainly. Doing it for friends. Yet his feelings aside, there he is in the White House. How would he have done? The first thing to establish, would they have won? And I think the answer is a pretty easy yes there. Um, anybody was going to beat Carter in 1980. Becomes a little more difficult if they were to swap with Ted Kennedy. But probably still... Um, Overall, there was such resentment over the gas lines, hostages, inflation, and other things that it was going to be difficult, and you could have run anything, any combination of tickets. And the only reason they were even talking about Reagan Ford is that there was a concern on the Republican side that Reagan was too right to win. And the 
Carter people were ecstatic that they were going to get Reagan because they could find so many extremes to run against. And, you know, you, again, as I said on the case, you got to put yourself back. You don't have yet the explosion of New York DNC 1980, uh, how far that Kennedy takes it where he's not even going to, you know, he does shake Carter's hand, but he's not even going to hold his hand up in a visual symbol that all the photographers are looking for. You have the Anderson third party ticket. You just have, you know, maybe the hostages could have been rescued. There's all these kind of all you don't know. And if any of those things had happened, maybe that Reagan ticket doesn't look as strong. But there's also an odd thing to consider. If you put Ford on the ticket, Anderson doesn't run. Anderson is a Ford ally. All right. He was one of Ford's supporters in Congress. He's a moderate Republican. He sees Ray uh, Ford on the ticket. He ain't going to run a third party race. If he does, you're going to have a sit down with Jerry. And that's how things happen in politics. And and he was free. You know, that Bush didn't have that same kind of influence over Anderson. So it wouldn't have been a third party, which oddly enough, could have made the race more difficult and could have given Jimmy Carter a chance because Anderson was taking votes from Carter in 1980 in New York, Connecticut, all these northern states. Um, and that's one of the reasons why it looks so lopsided. Because... Um, because of that Anderson vote being taken away, Carter only wins five states. He also concedes early, which means that the West Coast hadn't voted, you know, and that's because the East Coast was such a disaster. So again, that just magnifies how important it was. If you wanted any chance as Carter in 1980, you you wanted to have that Anderson out of there. Um, and what is Anderson but a force of Kennedy voters? Anderson's vice presidential candidate, Lucy, was a supporter of Ted Kennedy, the governor of Wisconsin. Okay, so a lot of the Kennedy vote from the primaries was going to from Carter to Anderson. If you don't have that again, it's reinforcing a little unification of the Democratic Party. So in an odd way, Reagan Ford creates a dynamic for Carter that gives him a little air bubble. There's another factor, Gerald Rafshoon, that that was running uh, Carter's campaign or his advertising was saying they were going to love that because if you had Reagan Ford, it was going to look like they were going to mercilessly find ways to make fun of that, that it looks like, you know, the president of the United States or the one that wants to be president of the United States is going to need a babysitter. That's about it. I still think you, you win that election, but you, oddly enough, give Carter a little more of an, a chance with a Reagan Ford ticket, albeit a Hail Mary. Okay. Uh, in the White House, there's one thing to consider, and that's that something like this sort of happened. In other words, the proposal in Detroit was that Ford would get control of the offices of the White House, and Reagan would be the president. So, like, he would control the staff. He would be, in effect, chief of staff in addition to being VP, and he would also be chair of the National Security Council. Reagan's still going to be president making the calls, but that gives um, Ford control over Reagan's information flow. And somebody who's like one of these partisans for Reagan is going to be like, that wouldn't have mattered. Reagan's a superhero. He could. That's not really the way the real world works. A president is very much kind of controlled by their paper flow, their information flow, especially in those days. He didn't have an internet on the on his own tablet. I mean, a president on his own tablet, you know, the the... So, and, and I know this because this is kind of what happens. 
in the actual events, Reagan's chief of staff becomes James Baker, who came from George W. Bush's team and not one of the Reagan people because they felt he was most qualified and they didn't like a lot of the Californians. There were too many Californians in the White House, too many of the real rabid right-wing conservatives. So James Baker acted as a moderated force, kind of kept information flow correct, kind of tamed Reagan as best he could with some of the crazy ideas. So like you have Ford there, you have James Baker there, you could ask a question of how much different is that? And you had this triumvirate that was running things that was Mike Deaver, James Baker, and Edwin Meese. Edwin Meese was the one Reagan friend. He was California Attorney General, and he was a conservative that kind of made that triumphant uh, work and um, was acceptable enough to the Reagan people because there was a Californian there. I think for Meese, I guess there was some chemistry, and also he saw it as an opportunity. Rather than being one of many California people, he was going to be the Reagan guy that could get along with this moderate team. They ran a lot in those early years. I would say first three years, you know, outside of Reagan himself, which he was constantly pushing the envelope and walking out of the zone, say, they were really in control of White House operations. So what's the difference? You know, and then the question to ask would be, does Ford and Mike Deaver, who has a lot of influence with the Reagans, particularly with Nancy Reagan, do they get along? Ford in his biography or his in his comments to Thomas DeFrank has some bad things to say about Nancy Reagan, feels she was bitter, feels she was kind of running the show too much, that, you know, she was making bad decisions for Ron. Would that have gotten out? Would that have been seen? Would there have been chemistry? And if you don't have Nancy Reagan, you're going to have um, Reagan being suspicious and not going to have full control. The answer is, is, is Ford able to craft a relationship or vice versa with Mike Deaver, who's influential, particularly in that first term? Uh, so that would determine a lot of things. Um, does Ford, what about Ford's relationship directly with Reagan? The two are not close. Does he now become out of duty, perhaps, or out of liking this arrangement, a friend? Or is he an employee? Reagan didn't have a lot of friends treated most people in the White House as employees only. Deaver's probably the exception when we discuss that. Does Reagan become the kind of iconic figure towering over politics, you know, getting his tax cut passed immediately if Ford's in the background all the time? Do we lose some of that? Does Ford start getting some of the credit? How do reporters handle this? What about during some of the bad times? Can this Reagan-Ford thing survive? Like during some of the political dramas, um, when news comes out that the CIA had poisoned waters in Nicaragua and that we were secretly supporting the rebels there, and people even like Barry Goldwater were against it and criticizing the White House, when allies like Margaret Thatcher are criticizing the Reagan White House, what does Ford do? Does he stay loyal? And perhaps ruin his own reputation? Or does he speak out? Does he speak out through leaks, which is certainly possible? Speak out through spokespeople who have nothing to do with the administration, but are known to be Ford supporters? Maybe Bush, who wouldn't have 
a White House job, presumably in this scenario, or Anderson, someone else. What about when Reagan comes out with a wild plan to cut Social Security and Tip O'Neill's clobbering him left and right with it? Where the Senate votes something like 98 to, to zero to uh, condemn the plan. Is Ford just going to s- stick around with that and be loyal to the administration? These are all questions, and they're things that come up in the second year, 1982. Does he run in 84? It's tempting to say that Ford doesn't run. This only lasts um, one year, one term. But that would be counter to the entire history. We haven't seen other than Ford himself replacing his own vice president uh, on the ticket, Rockefeller for Dole. We haven't seen an actual case of where a sitting vice president was uh, not running again on the ticket. So it's actually very rare. But it is possible he's not any older. Reagan's actually going to be two years older than uh, than Ford. So it's not like Ford's old. There might be every reason he runs in 84. And so that would be an interesting thing to see. Is he then there to help out with, uh, say, Gorbachev? Is he there for Iran-Contra? Iran Does he stop it in a way that Bush could not? So um, just like with any old history, what can I really add to it? Um, I do think that's a big thing. If Ford survives all the way into a second term politically and he's in control of the NSC, yeah, you're not going to have a situation where um, Iran-Contra happens. The other thing that's important is that is that Don Regan became chief of staff from Treasury, chief of staff, universally regarded as one of the worst chief of staffs ever. He just wanted the job to have influence over Reagan and be important. He wasn't very good at it. Presumably, if Reagan's never Treasury Secretary and you have Greenspan in there, there's no one to switch jobs with Baker and become chief of staff and either still have Baker or someone else perhaps capable, maybe the other Baker, Howard Baker, uh, who gets in later. Uh, And we, uh, again, those would be forces that would be preventing the kind of bad stuff going on in the White House. So you either have this situation where there's buffoonery or where Ford is stealing most of the credit for the accomplishments because every time that White House passes something, people are like, yeah, well, of course, Jerry Ford's there, former president, guiding things through the Senate, etc. Or he actually saves them politically. And you have an even more, you know, um, higher popularity ratings, don't have Iran-Contra. As with any altist, you know, we're just left with more questions. But at least you have a good framework there for how to evaluate how something like that might have happened. And, um, you know, I guess it's not out of the question that it could ever happen again. No one's really talking about that. But you could have someone say, well, we're actually going to run... DeSantis or something, but, you know, Trump will be VP. I doubt it, but it's constitutionally possible. That's it. Thanks for supporting us on Patreon and the Premium Podcast.